may blow if Jesus walks close to my side. Living by faith in Jesus above, trusting, confiding in his great love. From all harm safe in his sheltering home, I'm living by faith and feel no alarm. Well, good evening. Tonight we're going to continue our series on the Minor Prophets. If you've been following along on Sunday evenings, you know that there are some major themes that go across virtually all of the minor prophets. There is this theme of judgment, that there is this coming day of the Lord where God is going to demand retribution for the sins of the people. But then there's always that silver lining of hope that in the midst of this doom and gloom message, there is a hope of a glorious future on the horizon. And we see a couple of sins that are always prominent, injustice or the corrupt leaders making money off the backs of the poor people and keeping them poor and indebted to them, and then of course idolatry. And the whole message there for us is that we are the new Israel, we are the remnant, we are the chosen of God living in this day and age, the Christian age. And it's up to us to be faithful and to learn from the mistakes of those who went before us so that we do not repeat them. You may remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Jacob and Esau and, and how from them came the nations of Israel and Edom. These two nations continued the sibling rivalry that existed between Jacob and Esau, and it was a tense relationship, not just between the brothers, but again, between the nations as well. But I want you to, to go back for just a second to Genesis chapter 32. And in Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 24, we read what I believe is a rather strange account of Jacob wrestling with a man who reveals himself to be God. Starting in verse 24, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. So Jacob has this wrestling match with God, and apparently he wins. Of course, anything that happens in a situation like this is only because God allows it. But nevertheless, Jacob passes whatever test God is laying before him, and he receives a change in name. He is now officially known as Israel. And this is just one more episode 
that I hope will shed light on our study of these minor prophets. When you read about Israel, you're reading about the descendants of Jacob. You're actually reading about the descendants of Abraham, for which Jacob is a part of his lineage. But remember that we are the seed of Abraham. We are his chosen. Christians are the nation that came forth from him and the promise that God made to him. We are that blessed offspring. And that brings us to the prophet Habakkuk. What's interesting about this minor prophet is that he gives no rebuke against Israel. Habakkuk doesn't accuse Israel. He doesn't speak out against them. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to Israel. No, Habakkuk is asking a question. He is asking why. Habakkuk is looking around at the situation, the immorality, the idolatry, the injustices of the world, and he's asking God why. He's asking God how long. How long are you going to let this go, God? Are you going to do something about it? Maybe we've asked that question. I think all of us have probably asked God why. But here's the thing. Habakkuk wants action. He wants God to do something about it. And in chapters 1 and 2 of the book, Habakkuk lodges two complaints. The first complaint was this. Life in Israel has become unbearable. I can't deal with it any longer, God. The Torah is being neglected, which was leading to violence and injustice, and all of it was being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leadership. Habakkuk is crying out to God for him to do something, but nothing seems to change. If you look at chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it reads, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. Now, God hears Habakkuk. And he's under no obligation to respond, but he does. And he responds by stating that he is very aware of what is going on. That he is not far removed from what's happening. He is intimately aware of all the injustice, the idolatry, and all the things that are going on around Habakkuk, and he is going to deal with it. Notice verse 5 and following. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if, I were, if you were told, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. So God is going to punish the corruption of Israel by raising up the Babylonians and using them to punish his people. But Habakkuk isn't thrilled with this. And you know why? Because that isn't better. And it seems that Habakkuk takes issue with God and his idea in order to punish Israel. And so Habakkuk basically says, how is that better? How is that going to fix anything? The Babylonians are worse than Israel. And you're going to use them to punish my people? How is that going to be better? That was the prophet's second complaint. 
You're just going to make it worse, God. And notice verses 13 through 17. He says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and be glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? And so once again, Habakkuk is questioning God. How can a holy and righteous God use such wicked and evil people to accomplish his plans? What kind of God does that? And in chapter 2, in verse 1, Habakkuk likens himself to a guard who is standing post waiting for the Lord to give him an explanation. And God does. And so if you look at chapter 2, starting in verse 5, or starting in verse 2, let's, let's do that. He says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, Wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. So God tells Habakkuk to take a tablet and write down what I'm about to tell you. Write down the vision that I'm going to give you. And this vision is one that's going to explain why he is doing all that he is doing. Not that he owed Habakkuk an explanation, but he gives him one nonetheless, and he tells the prophet that even though he uses a corrupt nation like Babylon to bring his people into compliance, Babylon's not getting away with anything either. That in the end, the Chaldeans, will, they'll be punished. They're going to get theirs in the end. There's going to be a day when all the corrupt nations and all the immoral nations, not just Israel at this point, but all of them are going to get what's coming to them if they don't turn around. All evil, including the evil afflicted upon his people, is going to be condemned. Now, from here we see that God elaborates on his promise through a series of five woes. These woes focus on oppressive nations like that of Babylon. The first two woes had to do with treatment of the poor. That seems to be a common theme throughout these minor prophets, is that God cares about the poor. And he certainly cares about them being mistreated. And so creditors at this time were charging ridiculously high interest rates to keep people in debt, to keep people as their slaves, and, and to build their wealth through crooked means. That's the first two woes. The third woe deals with slave labor and treating human beings like animals, threatening them with violence if they didn't keep up with the quotas. The fourth woe, is an indictment against leadership. While others are suffering in slavery and from poverty, the leaders are getting drunk and partying. They are spending their wealth on booze and sex. And then the fifth woe is this. The fifth woe exposes the idolatry and the wickedness of Babylon and nations like it. 
When money, power, and national security become your gods, then you turn away from the one true God, and he gets pushed out of the picture. Now, these things that are mentioned here are not unique to Babylon, which is part of the message of Habakkuk. In that given the human condition, most nations eventually become like Babylon. When you turn away from God and you seek faithfulness to other gods, you will fall. And God's response to Habakkuk is really a response to all generations from that point forward who must live in a corrupt place. Have you been there? How many of you, when I was going through the five woes here in Habakkuk, thought to yourself, that sounds a lot like our nation. I mean, do we have injustice in our country? You better believe that we do. Do we have corruption in our leadership? Without question. Do we have people being treated poorly? Absolutely. Do we live in a culture that is highly immoral? Without a doubt. Just know that God's response to Habakkuk is a response to us as well. That God will punish all evil and injustice. Any nation that operates like Babylon will be destroyed, which is scary, really, when you think about it, right? How many of you can see our nation in the story of Habakkuk? Maybe you've read this story before, or maybe as I'm going through this, you're thinking to yourself, we may not be a full-blown Babylon yet, but certainly we have some of the same sins, don't we? Some of the same traits. Don't get me wrong, I love this nation. I'm grateful to be able to live in this country. The privileges, the rights that we get to enjoy, but that doesn't mean that I can gloss over our sins. That doesn't mean that I can turn a blind eye to them and pretend that they don't exist. Do you believe that God still destroys nations for their wickedness? I mean, I, I don't see anything to make me believe he doesn't. And that's scary, isn't it? Do you believe that he still brings down those nations that turn against him? The Babylons of the world will not avoid the judgment of God, something that we need to take to heart. And like Habakkuk, we need to pray. And in chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk is pleading to God for him to act now like he has in the past and bring down corrupt nations. Habakkuk's tired of seeing the corruptness in his nation and the nations around him. And he wants God to act and to do something. And then notice verses 3 through 7. He says, God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Every time you see Selah, remember that means pause. Think about this. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand, and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence, and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. These verses are reminiscent of the opening lines of Micah 
in Nahum, as well as God's appearance at Mount Sinai, that God comes in power, rays flash from his hand, there is pestilence before him and plague after him, the mountains are shattered, the hills collapse. In other words, when God shows up, everybody knows it. Everyone knows God is on the scene. Everyone pays attention, and everyone is scared. Then Habakkuk goes on to describe a future defeat of evil and a future exodus for his people. Just as God came and split the Red Sea so the people could cross over on dry land and escape Pharaoh and his armies, God will once again rain down judgment on the evil ones and those who lead it. And then in verse 13 he writes, You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. In other words, think about that. Pause and consider. God's going to have the last word. And Habakkuk knows that. Habakkuk just wants it to come sooner than later, right? Just like Babylon has been an archetype for wicked, violent, and corrupt nations, Pharaoh stands as an example of all those leaders of those nations and how he is going to fall as well. But within this prayer, we see that Habakkuk is holding on to a promise he is confident that God is going to save his people. That's, that's how it works. He knows that, that when God confronts evil, evil cannot stand. He saves the faithful as well. And in verse 13, Habakkuk also mentions your anointed. And this is a reference to the king from the line of David. And so Habakkuk is using the Exodus story as an image of a future Exodus for God's people where God will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs of the world. At the same time, he's going to bring justice to all, and he's going to rescue those who are oppressed and who have remained faithful. And so we see this theme of hope again, this theme that we have seen throughout the minor prophets, that in the midst of doom and gloom, there is a silver line, that God is going to save a remnant. Each minor prophet speaks of the sins of the nation, the judgment that is to come, and then also restoration and a future hope and it is the promise of a future exodus that allows Habakkuk to conclude his prayer with hope notice the very ending of the book Habakkuk 3 starting at verse 17 though the fig tree should not blossom fig trees were a sign of prosperity in this day and age though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. In other words, in the midst of famine and drought or whatever else comes my way, I'm going to choose joy. Habakkuk's story comes full circle. He began crying out to God, asking why and how long, and now he concludes with the realization that no matter what happens, no matter what evil goes on, no matter what travails may come his way, God is in control, and I'm going to trust him. I will find joy in the God of my salvation, he says. He too stands as an archetype. He is a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. And so that's the story of Habakkuk. Now, where's our story in that story? Do you have faith? That sounds like a rather simple question. And one that 
has a rather simple answer on the surface, right? Do you have faith? Well, of course I do. Of course I have faith. But do you really? Do you have the faith to say that no matter what is going on in my life, no matter what is happening, no matter how much evil surrounds me, no matter how corrupt things get, I know that God is in control. That I know that in the end, it'll all be okay. When we see the terrible injustice in the world, do we trust in God? I mean, you take abortion, for example. Is there any greater injustice than the murdering of the unborn? And what do you do about that? Well, maybe you strive to elect individuals that you think may be willing to do away with abortion. That maybe you think can get that done. Maybe you peacefully protest. Maybe you get angry. But do you pray? Like Habakkuk, do you pray? Do you trust that God is going to make it right? Do you look at the evil leaders in our world? And do you pray? Do you trust in God after your prayer that He is going to make it right because He is in control? What about God being removed from the public square? We look around us and we see this push to silence Christians, to see God removed from our public places. We see the Bible mocked. We see Christians ridiculed. We see the Bible refuted. What do we do about that? Well, we stand up, we're bold, we're convicted, right? We get angry, maybe. But do we pray? And do we trust that it's in God's hands? We look around at the darkness in the world, and it's easy for us to be like Habakkuk and say, God, don't you see it's winning? Are you going to do something about it? How long are you going to let the world win? When are you going to step in and do something? But do we pray? Do we believe that at the end of the day, God is in control and he's going to take care of it? Do you trust God's timing and do you trust his plan? Let me ask that again. Do you trust God's timing and do you trust his plan? Because if you answer that question with a yes, understand what you're saying. Because that's exactly what God, in essence, was telling Habakkuk, right? Do you trust my timing and do you trust my plan? Habakkuk said he did. He came full circle and at the end said, I know that you're in control. He asked how long, why in the beginning, at the end he said, okay, I know you're in control, I'm going to let you be in control. But what did that mean for Habakkuk? That it was going to get worse. That it was going to be a long time before it got better. Are you willing to accept that answer? Do you trust that God is in control? Do you have faith that he's in control? And if you do, are you willing to accept his timing and his plan? Because it might mean suffering and hardship. It did for Habakkuk. But that's exactly what the people needed. And it might be exactly what we need as well. Whatever the future holds, no matter how bad it gets, we have a promise. We have a promise of future glory. And I want you to listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter who is elected president, no matter how many wars that we have, no matter how many earthquakes or tornadoes or natural disasters, no matter the doctor's diagnosis, even if the cancer comes back, even if your spouse of 50 years no longer remembers your name or even recognizes you, God is in control. And His timing is best. And it may not seem like it right now. And in our innocence, in our, in our, in our wish for, for justice and for things to make, be made right, we may say, how long, God? Why? And I don't necessarily think that's a bad question to ask. I mean, we see Habakkuk asking it. We see David asking it in the Psalms over and over again. Why, God? But at the end of the day, can we come full circle like Habakkuk did and say, you know what? Whatever you decide, I'm okay with. And whatever happens, I'll take it. Because you know better than I do, you're in control. And so as modern day Habakkuk's, what do we do? We pray. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Amen, right? You know, when I drive to work every Sunday morning to come here to worship and to preach, every Sunday morning I pray on my drive. It takes me about 10 minutes to get here. And one of the things that I always pray for is I say, God, I know that there are people who are waking up this morning that cannot be at worship for whatever reason. There are people who would love nothing more than to be with us at Oldham Lane, but they're struggling with illness. They're suffering from disease, and they're not able to be with us. Give them a measure of peace and let them know that you're in control. And I really should pray that for all of us, right? Because all of us are struggling with something. All of us have something going on in our lives that we feel is just unbearable at times. And it may be kind of silly to everybody else, but not to you. It's serious, right? The question is, do I have enough faith to say, whatever happens, however long it takes, I trust God because He's in control. We can help you tonight if you're struggling, if you need the prayers of this church family. Come forward, let us pray with you.
you're struggling with sin and you're ready to, to make a change in your life, you're ready to learn more about Christ and redemption that comes through Him, let us study with you. You're ready to put on Christ in baptism, do that as well. Whatever your need is, don't leave here tonight without being right with God, right with your fellow man. Come now as we stand and as we sing.